of Luke chapter 1. I really like Luke's gospel. I always have. I think it's, I, I know we spent two years in the gospel of Mark, but Luke is one of my, uh, well, I like all four gospels. I think I have to say that as a preacher, but Luke, I'm a little biased towards Luke because unlike everybody else, he says right out of the gate, if you go back just one page, uh, or right at the very beginning, he says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us, it seemed fitting for me as well, having invested, investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in an orderly sequence most excellent Theophilus so that you may know that with the certainty about the things you have been taught Luke is a doctor we know that from scripture but he is an investigative reporter he's somebody who went back and he he interviewed people he asked people questions he he dug he wasn't just satisfied hearing the message he went back and looked into it and we know from his gospel as we read it we know that he interviewed Mary or at least somebody very close to Mary here we go with the microphone you guys saw this morning it's working okay I don't know what this is about but uh, he interviewed Mary. In fact, we know this because there are certain things that happen in his gospel that don't happen in the other four gospels. In fact, our text is evidence of that. The fact that, that he knows things that Mary did and Mary said that the other gospels don't record. And above all things, she, he also think, uh, records things that Mary thinks or Mary does in her heart. He says on a couple of occasions, he says, Mary pondered these things in her heart or she treasured these things in her heart, depending on your translation. Well, how would you know that unless you talk to the person whose heart that belonged to? And you have to remember, Mary was probably about 13 when she got pregnant, probably 14 when she gave birth. So she's not really that much older than Jesus. And she's not that much older than some of the disciples. So it's not beyond the, the realm of imagination that Luke was able to find her. And most people knew where she was. If you knew where John was, you knew where Mary was, right? Because John was entrusted to take care of Mary. So Luke likely ran into Mary at some point, probably traveling and, and meeting up with the apostles. And he probably sat down with her one time and said, Mary, tell me the story. Tell me what happened with his birth. Because it had to have been something, right? I've heard about the angels. I've heard about the shepherds. But tell me your side of the story. And so she does. And Luke records that. Luke gives us... in Exactly what took place from Mary's point of view. In fact, he gives us uh, mythology. He gives Matthew gives us Joseph's side. And if you recall a couple of years ago, we talked about Joseph. Matthew gives us Joseph's genealogy... And Luke gives us Mary's genealogy. So we're going to go ahead and we're going to begin reading in verse 46 this morning. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has looked upon the humble state of his slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is His name. And His mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear Him. He has done a mighty deed with His arm. 
He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who are humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his seed forever. What we see Mary doing in this... It's on. Am I still muted? There's, it's There we go. Okay. Sorry, guys. All right. It's Christmas, so we get the Christmas bugs, I guess. Uh, you guys can hear me okay, right? I'm loud anyway, but all right. So we look at this, and we see what Mary is doing. A little bit of background here. She's come to her cousin's house, who's pregnant, Elizabeth, postmenopausal woman, pregnant, with this baby, and she walks in, she starts to talk, and nobody said anything yet, but the baby leaps within Elizabeth's womb, and, Mary, and all of a sudden, Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit, and she begins to speak, and she talks about Mary being pregnant. She says something about, uh, where is it? She says, she cried out with a loud voice, to blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And I imagine Mary sitting there going, how'd you know? Because she didn't see the pregnancy test. Those didn't exist back then. Right? So the Holy Spirit tells, tells Mary, confirms this through Elizabeth, and then Mary breaks forth in this beautiful song. And in her song, what we are seeing is this beautiful example of what it looks like to worship in anticipation. Mary's deliverer, her Savior, is coming. In the same way we know the Savior is coming back. Amen? So until our deliverer comes, like Mary, we magnify his majesty, his mercy, and his message. That's what we really see taking place in this. If you're, if you're taking notes this morning, we magnify his majesty, mercy, and message. And when I say message this morning, I want to be very clear. I'm not talking about the message for the unbelievers. I'm not talking about the gospel. I'm talking about the message the Christian magnifies because the gospel has gripped their heart. You understand, we know the gospel, that Christ came, died for our sins, rose again, ascended to the Father, but the message that we magnify as Christians is He's coming back. That our Deliverer is coming back for us one day. Amen? Do we not get excited about that? By the way, you don't get that without Christmas. We don't get Easter without Christmas. You don't get a resurrection. You don't get a, you don't get a rapture without Christmas. For the record, today I am kind of fulfilling a promise I made to you all a couple of years ago when I did preach that message on Joseph. I said, for equality's sake, someday I'm going to preach a message on Mary. Here we are, okay? Never say pastor doesn't do what he says he's going to do, all right? But today when we look at this text, what we're really seeing is Mary's humble faith on display. And her song is filled with the Word of God. It's filled with Scripture. In fact, if we're, if we're looking throughout Scripture, Mary's song echoes another woman's song. And it's not uncommon, by the way. People think, well, this was made up or this was added later. Well, no, it wasn't. Because you understand, in Scripture, it's not uncommon for someone to break forth in worship. 
for someone to break out and, and, and sing. This was a cultural thing. We see it all the way back in the Exodus with Miriam, for example. We see it in Hannah's song, which is who Mary kind of echoes in her song. We see it with Deborah in the book of Judges. We see it four times, actually, in Luke's gospel. People break out in song. And, well, three times people, one time angels. And I like how Luke does that. He's basically saying that his gospel starts in worship. His gospel starts in music, in song. That's, that's a beautiful truth. But Mary is actually taking Hannah's song and, and echoing that, whether intentionally or not. The Holy Spirit, through Mary, is doing this. And both of the women, both Hannah and Mary, say that God exalts the lowly. They rejoice in his salvation. No one is like the Lord, they proclaim. They celebrate the humble being exalted and the proud being brought down. They both mention the dynamic between the poor and the rich. And they, they both mention God's care for the hungry. They both discuss the displacement of the nobles. And they both shift from personal deliverance to the deliverance of Israel by their true king. And like all mothers-in-waiting, there's this strong sense of anticipation, I'm sure, for both women. But you understand, Hannah, has she's been praying for this baby. She's wanted Samuel, her baby, to be born because in her circumstances, she was oppressed by her husband's other wife. And so she goes to the temple, she prays, and she prays so deeply from her heart that Eli, the priest, sees her, and she's not even saying words. She's just, she's just mouthing. Have you ever been at a point where you're so desperate in prayer, you can't get the words out? That's where Hannah was at. And Eli sees her, and he rebukes her for being drunk. And she says, I'm not drunk. She says, I, I just desperately need the Lord to answer and hear my, hear my prayer and answer it. Well, as Hannah was praying for a baby who would one day become a prophet, do we not know the whole world needs a deliverer? and cries out for one who would save them. I mean, why are superheroes so, so popular right now, right? We want somebody who can save us, who can rescue us, who can deliver us. And Mary sings the song of such a person, the only person throughout all of history who is capable of truly rescuing us, truly capable of saving us. And knowing this, it leads her to worship. It leads her to sing and her song will magnify his majesty, his mercy, and his message. And so for us this morning, the first point I want you to, to notice is to magnify his majesty. Like I said, Mary's song is the first, first of four hymns written in Luke. It's called the Magnificat. If you're not familiar with Latin, I'm not. I had to look this up. I'm not as smart as some people think. It's, uh, it's, it's Latin for glorifies or magnifies. She's worshiping here. And, and Luke's songs, the four that begin the gospel, begin with Mary's song. And it begins like this in our Bibles, verse 46. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Right out of the gate, we're going to dissect what she just said, okay? We're going to, if you don't like the Greek and the, you just kind of, your eyes glaze over when we do this, just hang on, okay? But she begins, she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. Some translations say, my soul exalts the Lord. Her soul, that's the Greek word, psyche. And that means her immaterial faculties. All that she truly is on the inside is exalting him. In other words, who Mary truly is, is all about glorifying God in this moment. 
It's all about magnifying him, making him seem bigger in her life. Exalting comes from the Greek word megalene, and it means she's glorifying, she's praising his greatness. Now the word Lord here, she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. That's the Greek word kurios, and we've seen that quite a few times as we went through Luke. But kurios is a very curious Greek word. Because while it can mean Lord in a governing sense, Mary is using it here as a very personal sense. It's not just Lord, it's Master. You see, she's acknowledging God as her Master, meaning that He is someone who owns her. She looks at God, and we'll see it later in the text, she looks at God as though He owns her life. He has complete control over that. Mary is saying that she was, she was blessing, glorifying, praising the one who had mastery over her very being. That's how Mary sees God. That's how she chooses to, to see him. And not just that, she, she says her spirit, and that's the Greek word pneuma. Some of you might hear me use the word pneumatology in the coming weeks. That's the study of the Holy Spirit. Pneuma means breath or spirit. That is her life force. Right? That's, what, that's what that means there. That's her life. And she's rejoicing with all the life that is within her. She's rejoicing in God, her Savior. Savior is an, another fantastic word. It's soteri. It's where we get the word soteriology. Where, the, where we, uh, our belief in how we are delivered. How we are saved. But the way she uses this word, soteri, She's saying that she needs someone who will rescue her from violence, deliver her from wrath. In saying, God, my Savior, in these words, Mary recognizes a fact that we all, as Christians, have come to realize as well, that we need a Savior. We need a deliverer. And church, our deliverer is coming. That's the title of today's message, by the way. My deliverer is coming. Mary recognizes this. She acknowledges she has sin in her life and she needs someone to save her from the wrath that that sin deserves. The idea that Mary was without sin, that she was herself somehow immaculately conceived, that she had no original sin, that she never experienced any separation from God, that is nowhere found in Scripture. In fact, Scripture affirms the opposite of that. Mary recognizes she needs a deliverer, and she knows her deliverer is coming. The same is true of us. The words in Revelation 22, 7, Behold, I am coming quickly. Our deliverer is on his way. It's just a matter of time. And Mary's worship, like I said, it mirrors Hannah's worship, and in that way, our worship should also mirror Mary's when we worship with anticipation. Our deliverer is coming. Verse 48, For he has looked upon the humble state of his slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. The quality that we are seeing of Mary here in her life, we are seeing that she is a very humble person. She exhibits humility. She says, He has looked upon the humble state of his slave. She'd already called him master. And now she says, Well, I'm his Slave, And isn't it interesting that Jesus' apostles 
will say the same thing about themselves. James will begin his epistle. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, to the Romans. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. Second Peter, Simon Peter, a slave, an apostle of Jesus Christ. John, in Revelation, he does something even bigger than that. He says this. He says, the revelation or apocalypse of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his slaves, plural, that would be the church, which must happen, must soon happen. And he indicated this by sending it through his angel to his slave, John. That's how we are to see ourselves as he is our curios, he is our master. And we don't like that. We don't like to say slave because it gets a little, you know, Annabelle himself and we don't want to go that route. But, you know, slavery with a good master was a good thing for thousands of years before, before the slave trade that we know of in America. And Mary sees this way. Now, I understand the apostles thinking that, right? Because if you're an apostle, apostolos is the Greek word, and that means you are representing Christ wherever you go. When Paul writes to the churches, he is writing as if Christ himself is writing, is, is speaking himself. And so I would understand, hey, I... I'm under his mastery. I'm his slave because I have to represent him everywhere I go. In fact, every time I go into a town, says Paul, they, they want to beat me or kill me, right? That's what they did to Jesus. So by proxy, by apostolos, that's, that's what he's doing. That's what he's saying. We get that. But Mary's Jesus's mother. How many of you moms, maybe you don't want to answer this, but would, would say that you're a slave of your kids, not, open, not openly would most people admit that, right? Mary sees that not in the way Maddie just raised her hand. All right? She sees herself as a slave to a sovereign, curious master. And what we understand from that is this simple truth, church. And if, you're, if you've got the notes, you might want to underline or circle this. We cannot truly worship God in His majesty if we are trying to focus on our own. We cannot worship God in His majesty if we're trying to build up our own majesty. So we humble ourselves before Him and we worship Him in His majesty. And in her humility, she understands that she is blessed. She says, from now on, all generations will count me blessed. Now, you might say, well, how is that humble to say that? That sounds like she's saying everybody from now on is going to say how great I am. That's not what she means. She's saying she was blessed because she was chosen to give birth to the deliverer that her soul needed. That is not a blessing if you think about it. That's a lot of responsibility. In all of history, through all of time, God looked down, he saw Mary, this little Jewish girl who was about 14 years old, and he said, that's the young woman I want to raise my son, to protect my son, to nurture my son. That's, that's a huge blessing. That's a huge honor. And we're going to see why. Why would God choose her? Well, Mary is not some slouch when it comes to theology, believe it or not. She's not ignorant of the word. Her heart and her mind are soaked, saturated with Scripture. She's already alluded to, uh, alluded to Hannah's song in the, in the birth of Samuel the prophet. So she knows the, the history books of Israel. She's familiar, we're going to see by the end of the, the message today, we're going to see she's familiar with the covenants of God, so she knows the law. She's going to quote a couple of psalms at least, or at least paraphrase them. So she's familiar with the worship songs of Israel, the psalms. 
And she's going to re reiterate this idea out of Isaiah. She's familiar with the prophets. You see, Mary is very much saturated with the scripture. So who better to raise the Son of God? Someone who would not only know who he was, but understand him when he's going to have a childhood much different from the other kids. When people don't know how to take him, when he seems a little too smart for his own good, when he's 12 years old and he's found in the temple later in Luke chapter 2, who better to understand and not be angry that he's in the temple with these guys and they're amazed at his wisdom and he's only 12 years old. Now she's someone who, who knew exactly who the boy was and what he was going to be because she knew what scripture proclaimed about him as much as she knew what Gabriel had told her about him. That song that we hear so often. Mary, did you know? Yes, she did. Yes, she did. And she was the perfect choice to raise him. But Mary's focus is not on herself. It's on his majesty. We read on in verse 49. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name, the mighty one. Just like Hannah, Mary is focusing on the attributes of God that reflect his character. Hannah says, there is no one holy like Yahweh. Indeed, there is no one beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. The mighty one has done great things for her. The mighty one and these acts, it's, it's acts that, that basically show that she is held in the highest of esteems by God Almighty that he set her apart, that he's chosen her, that he has a plan and a purpose for her that's going to lead to the greatest of all things, that her deliverer, who is our deliverer, is about to come onto the scene. And this leads Mary to a point of the sincerest worship. She says, holy is his name. His name is a reflection of his will, his authority, his character, his sovereign rule, his love, his goodness, his faithfulness. It's not a magic word we tack on to the end of a prayer. It is when we say that at the end of a prayer, what we are saying is, Lord, your name be holy. Your will be carried out in this prayer. That whatever I've prayed in, that's not in agreement with your will, just strike it from the record. That's really what we're doing when we say that. Because we understand that he is holy. Mary worships. She says his name is holy. And honestly, that is probably the most terrifying attribute of God. His holiness. Because if he alone is holy, and he alone is without sin, and he alone is pure and good and righteous, and we were made to be in his image, but fell and now have sin, and that sin has infected us all, Paul tells us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, then from a holy God, we deserve a holy wrath. Do we not? He cannot tolerate sin if he's truly holy. By the way, Paul doesn't say all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God except Mary. He doesn't say all have, fallen short, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God except Pastor Jeff. He certainly wouldn't do that. He doesn't even say that about himself. In fact, he called himself the chief of sinners. Because he understands, like Mary, all need a deliverer, all need a savior from the wrath that that sin demands from a holy God. So God sends his son to be born of this incredibly bright young woman for his purpose, for the redemption of his people, for those who would believe and call upon his name and be saved. The deliverer was coming and Mary worships. Church, I want to tell you today, the deliverer is coming. We have to worship. It should compel us to worship. 
It should draw us to worship as we magnify his majesty. But we also should magnify his mercy. Look at verse 50. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. This is a very interesting verse, actually, because it kind of echoes the promise to Abraham that God made, and it, it kind of echoes Deuteronomy 7, verse 9, which says, You shall know, therefore, that Yahweh your God, he's God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness to a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commands. It's almost exactly a quote. It's more of a paraphrase, but it's, it's almost exactly a quote of Psalm 103. But the loving kindness of Yahweh is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. But notice the difference. There's a very subtle difference in how Mary says this and in how the psalmist wrote it. Mary says there's mercy. In the Greek word, that's elios. It means pity or compassion. It's this love that kind of hurts for somebody, that longs for somebody. But in the Hebrew, in Psalm 103, it's that chased, that loyal love. What Mary is doing is understanding that mercy comes from God's love, from his steadfast, loyal love. And she's celebrating, in a sense, she's celebrating God's mercy because his mercy will be available to everyone who fears him. We don't like to talk about fear of the Lord. We don't like to get into that, but it's very important because it's more than that healthy respect, some people like to say. It's, it's really, it's a reminder that he's all-powerful. It's a reverence for what he is capable of. Jesus himself would say, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Even more so, we often, we'll talk about grace, right? How many of you love sermons on grace, right? We hear them all the time, but we very seldom will hear a lot of talk about mercy. It's not often we look at God's mercy. The expression goes, grace, grace is receiving that which we do not deserve. Oh, we love that. I love getting things I didn't expect, I didn't earn, right? That's grace. But mercy is not receiving that which we do deserve. I don't like that so much. Because that means I deserve something that I probably don't want. Right? We almost always stop with that little saying, and then we'll go on, we'll talk about grace. We'll explain grace. But we don't want to dwell too much on mercy. Because if we do, we have to reconcile the fact that were it not for God's mercy, we would be lost. We don't like to think about it, so we skirt around it. We'll, we'll go on, we'll talk about other things. But you understand, grace and mercy are two sides of the same coin. And in the coin is God's loving kindness. The same coin is his steadfast love. His mercy is a key to, to the reasons why we worship him. His mercy flows out of his love. We see this in how God reveals himself to Moses. He says, Yahweh, God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. You understand, if we go back, that compassion, compassion is a mercy. Slow to anger, that's a mercy. Abounding in loving kindness, that's mercy. And we saw last week, his truth is a mercy. We don't think about that. We take it for granted, don't we? 
But it is a mercy that he gives us the truth of who he is and what he's about. You understand that that's such a rare thing in the religions of the world? To have a God who is truthful to his worshipers? The pagan gods, they were known to be shapeshifters and tricksters and manipulators. And they would like to sneak into their people's houses and, and do cruel things to people. In fact, they, they glorified the trickery of gods with gods like Hermes and, and Mercury and Loki. Everybody knows Loki because of the Marvel movies, right? That's to say nothing of the Hindu gods and the Japanese spirits and things like that. God being a God of truth is not only rare, but it's a mercy to his people. If his, minds and his, his, if his mind and his thoughts and his ways are, as Isaiah says, so truly above our own, then it is a mercy that he reveals anything to us. Anybody here found an ant recently and felt like telling them your, your plan for the day? That's, a, that's about the equivalent of God giving us Genesis through Exodus. Is it not? He's so far above, so much greater. And yet he does that because, well, we might step on the ant and keep walking. He loves and shows compassion and mercy to his creation. On top of this, his mercy is for generation after generation. And I've pointed this out in a recent sermon. I'll do it one more time. This is Jesus' request in his high priestly prayer in John 17. He says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who also believe in me through their word. We have their word, do we not? Thankfully, it's preserved in our Bibles. The same gospel they preached, the letters to the churches, we can enjoy His mercy and the story of His mercy and compassion from generation to generation. We have the same thing available to us that Mary had, actually. She had what was called the Tanakh. We call it the Old Testament. And we worship Him because of this. We magnify that mercy. We look at, again at verse 51. He's done a mighty deed with His arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. Mary begins to sing and she shows God's mercy is for all people. It's, he has done, the, the word is kratos there, mighty deeds, and it's plural. It's not just this current deed, but it's all the great things God has done throughout history. And it's culminating in this current thing. This miracle he does he's done it with his strength with his strong arm that he's brought forth his son who started to grow within the physical body of of mary within her womb as she sings these words now notice that she does a shift here in verse in this verse she says in her song god has done good mighty deeds but he's also scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart Proud in the thoughts of their heart. The, the New English translation says the sheer arrogance of their hearts. Maybe that gives us a little better insight. The literal Greek is the imagination and dispositions of their hearts. What Mary is saying here, she's rebuking the proud. Now, I don't know how many of you ever went over to a friend's house and did something you weren't supposed to and had their mom scold you. But imagine Jesus' mom scolding you right now. That's not a cool thing, right? That's not a comfortable thing. So you've got to ask, well, hold on a second. It wasn't me, right? I'm not the, I don't know what you're talking about, Mary. Who's she talking about? The proud. Who is this? These are those, the, the Greek word is actually 
hyper, which means more than or greater than, and the word phanos, which means shine or be seen. These, what, what that word is telling us is these are those who want to be the center of attention. Those who want to play politics. Those who want to use whatever little power they have to use that to work in their favor. These would be those who, in our world, would think that power is their right. Their position is their right. Those who've gotten a taste of influence and they refuse to let go of it. I wasn't talking about the baby this morning, but... Thank you. Those who've gotten a taste of power and refuse to let go of it. Why? Because of the thoughts that they've determined in their own heart. This goes beyond a tendency... This goes beyond just being a seared conscience or a stubborn, stiff-necked people. This is a heart that wants control. Mary says God scatters them. And do you understand that even in his scattering of them, that is a mercy. That's a mercy not just for his people to to get them away from from them, but it's that they may also come to repentance. That they might see the error of what they've done and how far they've gone. and That they would repent and turn back. In fact, Paul gives us an example of such people in his first letter to Timothy. He says, some have rejected the having of a good conscience. They've suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Their names were Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom he has handed over to Satan, he says. 1 Timothy 1.20 So they'll be taught not to blaspheme. In other words, so they'll come to repentance. So they'll understand. We don't know exactly what they did, but we can read the context and understand that they've rejected having a good conscience, that they've rejected the faith, and they were probably enjoying the luxuries they got from the position under Paul where they would go from town to town. And he says he's handing them over to Satan. That is a mercy for them. Probably didn't feel like mercy. Sometimes mercy doesn't feel that merciful, does it? But God in his sovereignty pours it out in that way. The sovereignty of God, I said this to somebody recently, the sovereignty of God is like the Hebrew language. It's best when we read it backwards. We often don't see God's mercies in our life until we're so far down the road. Well, often we don't appreciate them because we're so far removed from the matter. But all we can do is say, hey, God, you were merciful in that moment. Thank you. And so we magnify him for his mercies. Verse 52. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. The scattering continues as he's brought down the rulers from their positions of authority, their seats of power. Then she flips it back. and He has exalted those who were humble. Both Mary and Hannah's songs do this very thing. This switch back and forth where they acknowledge this reversal of fortunes. 1 Samuel 2.4, Hannah says, The bows of the mighty are shattered, but those who stumble gird on strength. The proud, the rich, the powerful, they're scattered and they're brought low. The bows, of course, that's a symbol of their power. And God has shattered it as he's scattered them. And meanwhile, the lowly are raised up. They're exalted. They're praised. Do you think Jesus understood this himself whenever he was preaching? Blessed are the lowly, for they shall inherit the earth. We also talk about how he's quoting the Psalms. But isn't it fitting? Isn't it fitting that the woman who raised him was likely singing these Psalms in their home? Psalm 32, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. 
Songs like Psalm 128, how blessed is everyone who fears Yahweh, who walks in His ways. And so Mary exemplifies for us the worship of God for His mercy, that we magnify Him in His majesty, we magnify Him in His mercy, but finally we magnify Him in the message. The message that He's coming back. He says, He has filled the hungry with with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. Again, this shows Mary's knowledge of the Old Testament. She's basically paraphrasing Psalm 107, verse 9, if your kid's following in the kid's notes, Psalm 107. For he has satisfied the thirsty soul, and the hungry soul he's filled with what is good. He's filled the hungry with good things. Well, what else would he do? Right? We take it for granted as Christians that he's a good God. What else would he do? He's good. He's good. Of course he's going to give them good. No, remember, in the time Mary was living, the pagan gods, they delighted in tormenting mankind, in tricking them and feeding them horrible things or getting them completely drunk and and turning them into animals and things like that. That's, That's the gods of the world. But it's the God of Christianity. It's Mary's God that provides good things, that provides food for the hungry. It shows and affirms His goodness. This idea of God providing for the hungry, it's not just, it's throughout Scripture. But it's, it's very clearly seen in the book of Ruth. If you remember, Ruth begins, Naomi's husband, there's a, there's a famine in the land, so they go to the land of Moab. And that's where she meets Ruth, who marries one of her sons, Naomi does. And she ends up hearing, in, in, in Ruth 1.6, she hears that the Lord had visited his people and brought food. And isn't it interesting, where does Naomi take Ruth? To Bethlehem. Of all cities. The city of, that will become the city of David. Because Ruth is the grandmother, great-grandmother of David. House of bread. That's Bethlehem. That's what its, that's what its name means. And Mary's going to go and give birth to the bread of life. How beautiful and how fitting that God has filled the hungry with good things. And the good things, the bread of life, which is coming because the deliverer's coming. And it is the rich, the wealthy, whom God will send away empty-handed. Those who have in this life, they've, they've had the worldly goods that prevent them from humbling themselves and coming to God. Those who rely on their own wealth to save them, they're, they're going to end up being empty-handed. Jesus himself said how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The message of Mary is that God is someone who sees our needs, sees our hurting, sees our trials, sees our pains, our hunger, and he truly satisfies those who need it. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Mary is singing of God's sovereign provision for his people, and it begins and it ends with the baby that she now carries in her womb. So in her song, she's magnifying this message that this hope for all generations who would come after her, that they would hear this, that they would know the deliverer is coming. Verse 54 says, He's given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. He's come to the aid of Israel. She sings this. 
And we know Israel was the real focus of Jesus' ministry. He did go to the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4. He spent time in the Samaritan territories like the Decapolis and things like that. We know that. But he never hides the fact Israel is the true focus of his earthly ministry. Because Israel is God's people, first and foremost. They're going to hear the good news. They're going to get the first crack at it, Paul tells us, in not so many words. He says very clearly, Jesus does, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He tells the disciples when he sends them out in Matthew 10, he says, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He makes it clear in his actions and his cursing of the fig tree and his cleansing of the temple and so on. It's because of this message of hope for Israel that Paul will later write to the Romans and say all Israel will be saved. But for us, even for us, as the people of God, the church of God, the ecclesia, the called out ones of God, the message is that of hope that God brings aid to his people. And he still does that. And the greatest help he gives, the greatest remembrance of his mercy, is when he takes his people and he saves them from the wrath that's about to be poured out upon the earth. Church, our deliverer is coming. That is a message we can magnify him for. Finally, we look at verse 55. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his seed forever. Mary's specifically referring to the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 17. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your seed after you. Through Christ... We are part of that covenant. You ever hear that song? You remember that, that children's song from years ago? Father Abraham had many sons. You remember it? Sing with me. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them. And so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right? Nobody's standing up and doing it. That's okay. We won't do it right now. But there's a lot of truth in that song. We are his seed forever. We are grafted into Israel. Paul tells us this. And as he spoke to our fathers, now Mary is talking genealogically. She's talking DNA-wise. She's an actual physical 23andMe descendant of Abraham. But it applies to us spiritually. As he spoke to our fathers and promised to deliver, he spoke to the apostles, and he's coming again. 1 Thessalonians 4.13, Paul says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we shall always be with the Lord our deliverer is coming and the whole Bible ends with these words he who bears witness to these things says yes I am coming quickly amen come Lord Jesus the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all amen that's the message that's not the gospel that Jesus is returning is not the gospel the gospel is that he came, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The gospel is that God's son, this baby we celebrate at Christmas, died on a cross for the sins of mankind, that whoever believes in him, believes God raised him from the dead, would be saved and have eternal life. That's the gospel. That's the truth. But the joy of the Christian isn't that eternal life begins when we die. The joy of the Christian is that he comes into our life and we begin it now. Death is just a speed bump on the road to eternity. Amen? 
The message for the Christian, the message we magnify as believers, the, the reason we magnify is because we've understood the gospel. And now the message for the believer is, and he's coming back. It's not just enough that he came the first time to save me from my sin. He's coming back to take me to be with him. Our deliverer is coming. I'm going to ask the worship team to go ahead and come on back. A couple of years ago, we looked at the silent obedience of Joseph, who would take this young woman and her baby, and they would go in exile to Egypt. And as I was building this message in my mind for the past month, this has been weighing on me. And I began to think of this song that I heard back in my high school days by the late Rich Mullins. And it goes, Jesus took, or sorry, Joseph took his wife and her child, and they went to Africa to escape the rage of a deadly king. There along the banks of the Nile, Jesus listened to the song that the captive children used to sing. And they were singing, my deliverer is coming. My deliverer is standing by. My deliverer is coming. My deliverer is standing by. He will never break his promise, though the stars should break faith with the sky. Church, our deliverer is coming. He was faithful to come the first time. He'll be faithful to come again. No matter what the next year holds, no matter what the next month holds, no matter what the next day holds, we have hope in that truth, in his faithfulness. He will never break his promise. Even if the stars should fall from the sky, he will come to our rescue. He is our deliverer. Let's stand as we close and worship this morning.